my son. Because he really is the central figure in terms of what we call the church. And so you have three of the most powerful beings to ever exist. And they're all saying, listen, look at the other person. Look at the other person. What I'm afraid of is that our version of church in America is that we've lost sight of the centrality of Jesus. I mean, he is the head of the church. Scripture is clear about that. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel and to the Gentile world. We're going to look at that this morning. He is Lord. He is Savior. And when we lose sight of the head, the church becomes something less than it ought to be. Instead of being imitators of Christ, we've attempted to usurp his authority. And I've lived through, I hate to admit this, but four decades now of church growth theory. It makes me sound old, doesn't it? (laughs) And as I'm reflecting upon this past two weeks, to me, it's like we're the nation of Israel. Instead of going into the promised land, we question God's authority and we're left wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And we become less of a powerful force than we ought to be. But with all our church growth theories, we find out how to shift the sheep to our pen. And we say, wow, look at us. We got warm bodies sitting in a pew. That is not the goal of the church, people. The goal of the church is just give me Jesus. When I wake up in the morning, it's navigating this world, being a follower of Jesus, and influencing those around you. And we gather once a week together to celebrate, to worship, to recharge, to learn together, to be community, to disagree, to agree. But what we all agree upon is that he is the head. He is the Messiah. He is Lord. He is Savior. There is no other. And no one should ever step into the authority role and take it from him. Amen. Now, according to scripture, Jesus is central three ways. The first is he's the center of history. I mean, have you ever noticed our calendars? They do with BC. What's it stand for? Before Christ and AD after his death. John chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. We define history according to the centrality of Jesus. But so often we define history by our context. Not the context of centuries. Church is supposed to be a life-giving movement. Now, what that means in our context is that we're very honest. We pay our taxes, even though we think they are unfair and we think they shouldn't take our money. We still do that because that is the role of a good citizen. It means that we are pro the value and dignity of all people. There isn't one race that is superior to another. There isn't one gender that is superior to another. That in Christ, 
There is no male or female. There is no free or slave. And even though we disagree on questions of sin, and I put sin in parentheses, there is never an excuse to devalue another person who was and is and made in the image of God. And we can say they're living in sin, but we don't devalue them. We walk with them. And even when accusations come our way, we do not devalue somebody who is made in the image of God just because they don't like us. What all this means is we practice the presence of Christ. We do so with gratitude. We do so with value and dignity of life. We do so with the possibilities of Christ rather than simply pointing everything out that is wrong. And I got to tell you, there is plenty of opportunity in our country today to stop pointing out everything that is wrong and start pointing people to Jesus. Amen? The centrality of Jesus in terms of history is a reminder that Christianity never begins with what we do for God. It always starts with what God has done for us. And that is a crucial thought to think about. We celebrate a communion. We celebrate what God has done for us, not what we have done for God. Number two, we think about the centrality of Christ in the focus of Scripture. The Bible is not a random collection of religious documents, as some would tell us. In John chapter 5, verse 39, it says, You search the Scriptures because you think... In them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me. To be ignorant of scripture is to be ignorant of Christ. You want to know him? Then you have to. Then you must look here. There's a lot of opinions about who Christ was. Just like the disciples running to Jesus saying, listen, everyone's saying, mm, mm, mm. But what does the word of God say? With that in mind, Barna did a recent study of Christians in America. Listen to what he discovered in terms of practicing Christians. He says 17% of practicing Christians, just 17%, consider faith important. I want to say, what do the other, is it what, 83% think? 17% of practicing Christians, people claim to be Christians, consider faith important, attend church on a regular basis, and claim to have a biblical worldview. I looked at it and I said, wow. 38% of practicing Christians are sympathetic to Muslim, Buddhist, alternative teachings. You fill that in outside of our religion. 38% said, you know what? 54% of practicing Christians resonate with postmodern views. Now, if you don't know what postmodern views are, they got rid of modern culture and they just tell you what's wrong with life and never point you to what's right with life. And I'm thinking, that's about appropriate. 54% of people saying what's wrong and not what's right. 29% of practicing Christians believe in ideas based on secularism. means they believe culture over and above Christ. 38.6% of practicing Christians accept ideas associated with Marxism. 
23% of practicing Christians strongly agree with what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. 19% of practicing Christians strongly agree with no one can tell you, no one can know for certain what the meaning and purpose of life is. I thought, wow. And 15% of practicing Christians strongly agree with if your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, then those beliefs are wrong. I got to tell you, when I read scripture, it offends me. Because in my own narcissism or arrogance or my own trying to do things my way, it corrects me back to where I ought to be. But Christ, when we talk the centrality of Christ, he's the center of history. He's also the focus of scripture, the center of the Bible. And three, he's also the heart of the mission. He's the head of the church. Ephesians 1.22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Everything we do, our core values, call it whatever you want, it's about his kingdom. The centrality of Jesus is where we define meaning and purpose. But human tendency, and this is where we look at history, human tendency is to create a Jesus according to our whims and our desires. That's why churches in America, some have a political Jesus. They're the churches that declare Jesus on their side. He is, and you name the political party. There are some that have an economic Jesus. See, he's an entrepreneur, and, and if you live right, and if you act right, you're going to be successful and have a lot of money, and he is just going to give you blessing all over the place in terms of profits. Then there's the philosophical Jesus. Jesus is love, and everyone wins. Ultimately, in the end, everybody gets in. See, the problem is our approach is wrong. See, the question we should be looking at is how does the Bible portray Jesus? I mean, what does Scripture say? Not what do we think it says, not what does somebody else say. And it's okay to read other contexts to help us discern and to think. You know, I love to read. I love to read people that oppose my ideas because it challenges me and says, okay, you know, where do I get this from? But what does the Bible say about Jesus? So we're going to look at the four Gospels. And I want to ask this question. We sit there and say, well, this and this and this is what people say about Jesus. But my question to you this morning is, how does GBC, how does our church portray Jesus? Not just by our words. Because we can have the right words. But when we leave this place, when we go to restaurants, when we go to work, when we go to our retirement homes, when we visit family, when we're with friends, when we sit down with strangers and they start sharing with us. I mean, we, we came across a person this past week that uh, we rented from. And it's hard to believe, but he says he's never, ever read the Bible in his life. And he's my age. And that just kind of broke our hearts because in the Bible we find Jesus. And in Jesus, you find life. So I want to look at Matthew this morning. 
and I want to look at Jesus as Messiah. I remind you of a verse that we read when we did the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That was some of the accusation. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He would be the Messiah. Eleven times in Matthew, we have this phrase. Now, this took place that it might be fulfilled what was written. So Matthew, in many ways, gives us insights to the Old Testament saying, well, you know, Jesus did this because it fulfilled this prophecy. In fact, he begins. And how does Matthew begin? I mean, how many of you sat down and read the first part of Matthew chapter 1? It's kind of boring, isn't it? We call it the genealogy. But that genealogy was important because it goes from Abraham to David, David to the present, and it proved that the Messiah was going to be descended of David and of Abraham. And so it takes this genealogy. But here's the point I want to say, because we talk about authority of Scripture. If it's there, it's there for a reason. And when you take the time to read the list, most people skip over this. And you know what we miss? We miss the grace of God. You can turn there if you want. Don't believe me, but there are four names in there that are kind of suspect. When I say suspect, we're like, oh, why did God choose those people to be the lineage that would bear the Messiah? You see, Tamar. You know the story about Tamar? Judah viewed Tamar as cursed when her husband died, and he did not follow the law because he was supposed to give another son to her. So what she did was she deceived Judah. She tricked her father-in-law, that's who he was, to get her pregnant by playing the role of a prostitute. And she got pregnant. And it was that lineage that God chose to deliver the Messiah. Would you do that? Then we have Rahab. Story of Rahab. Story of Joshua marching around the city. Rahab, the prostitute who hid the spies under Joshua. She wasn't Jewish descent. I mean, why would he take a non-Jewish person and someone of this kind of stature to bear the lineage of the Messiah, his son? Then there's Ruth. Ruth was an outsider. She's a Moabitess. She wasn't even an insider. Of course, recorded here as well as Bathsheba. David took her as his own and murdered her husband to cover up his sin. And all I'm saying is this. When you start reading this and you realize that he fulfilled the lineage of David, but it's fascinating to me that God chose four ladies that had some really serious pasts. And that you and I in our church today would probably exclude them because they aren't part of the insider club. But we see the grace of God starting out, even when you look at this lineage of Messiah, of how God navigates life, saying, listen, every single person has value and dignity in me. And I can redeem and I can restore anyone. And so if you're here this morning and you have a serious past, it's just not for ladies, it's also for men. God is able, because he's the Messiah, Jesus, to restore and redeem you and do some incredible things. I can imagine none of these four ladies ever thought that they'd be part of this lineage, but they are. 
I mean, when I read that, and every time I read that, I ask myself the question, why did God choose these ladies? Why not someone else? Because I can tell you right now, if we had a council on who was going to be the lineage of Jesus, most of us would not choose these four people. We would hold their past against them. Jesus, Messiah. The first thing I want to show you is that he was the fulfillment of Israel. In Matthew 15, I'm going to read some verses. And he's having this conversation with this lady. He says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter severely possessed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying after us. So, so get this picture here. There's a Canaanite woman who's chasing. He's ignoring them. The disciples saying, Jesus, do something. Because you know what? Canaanite lady, she's not one of us. She's not an insider. Send her away. You know, just get rid of her. He answered and said this. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When you look at the Messiah, you realize that his initial coming was to restore Israel Destroy, to, to, to bring back Israel to its place where it was with God. Now, I love the end of this, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? Now, again, understand Jesus uses sarcasm. And he's teaching his disciples. And he's teaching disciples what's going to happen later. That yes, Israel, the Messiah came to be fulfillment of Israel, but it's going to get out to the Gentiles as well. And she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, a woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So understand, he came to fulfill Israel. But here we see a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on. In Matthew 10, verses 5 through 8, these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. So the Messiah came to restore Israel. Israel, which was the people of God, lost their way. They set up rules and regulations. They set up institutions. They set up policies. They set up watchtowers to wait for the Messiah. They prayed three times a day for the Messiah. And when he showed up, they couldn't recognize the very son of God that they prayed for. Why? Because they refused to submit to the authority of God. They built structures and institutions based upon their own authority and not upon God's authority. And there's countless illustrations of this in the Old Testament. You know, they were a theocracy. You know what that is? God is king. But they came crying to the leader saying, listen, we want our king just like everybody else. And God says, okay, it's not my plan. That's your plan. You want human authority? It's not going to go well. And he gave them what they wanted. 
But we see this shift then. We see shift of the Messiah from Israel to the world. In Matthew 21, verses 43 through 46, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. (laughs) I love that phrase. They knew they were getting chastised by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And they had a choice. Their choice was, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You know, it's interesting when you look at scripture, you can see the fact that he's going to be shifting from Israel to the rest of the world as early as his birth. Who showed up? It was the Magi. The Magi represented many nations. At the very end of Matthew, what do we hear? In Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So what difference does all this make? If he's the central figure in history, if he is the messianic messianic figure, what does that mean? I mean, what do we need to try to avoid at the same time? What do we invite into our lives? I really want to close with two thoughts. The first is it impacts our attitude. Now, when I talk about attitude, you know how we talk about people who sport an attitude? You ever say that? And what I find interesting today is things like Facebook give people a sense of bravery to express attitudes because they don't have to do it face to face. They can do it and just send it out there and not hear the immediate consequence. Now, attitudes, we all have them. It's the choices we make. Paul says in Philippians 2, have this attitude or this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And the key phrase in that passage is that he humbled himself and he became obedient. Paul says this in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may, that by testing, you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But you know, this mind thing, we have to discipline under the authority of Christ. Let me give an illustration. Take conflict. Anybody ever been in a conflict? (laughs) Every week, right? All you have to do is bring up something with politics and you're in a conflict. Guarantee it. There's three choices in our head when we go into a conflict. Here they are. We can take the role of persecutor. We're going to accuse and blame. We can take the role of rescuer. That's the whole codependent dance. We're going to fix it. Or we can take the victim. Woe is me. You know, I'm being oppressed. It's somebody else's fault. I'm being picked on. Now the kingdom of God mindset is very different when it comes to conflict. Have you noticed that? I love this. In Romans 8, he goes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Later on, he says, who is to condemn us? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Get that picture in your head.
I love the fact in this passage. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness? You know, those, those are all point of conflicts, aren't they? Danger, sword. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, as Christians, as kingdom of God people, we're not persecutors or victims or rescuers. We are more than conquerors. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when you talk about what's important, to me, that's critical. (laughs) Because when we die, when we see him face to face, the only thing that's going to bring us in is Christ. Not what you did but what he did for you. So think about attitude. If he's the Messiah, think about your mind. Think about how you navigate life. Think about how you think. The second is focus. Now we often focus on the wrong things. I like thinking of a compass, Christ being true north. If you know what orienteering is, orienteering is the art of taking a map and a compass and you Set a point and you go to that point. But that point is always the destination. And, and you hit mountains and you got to go around them. But you still focus on that point. You hit lakes and rivers and oceans. But you still focus on that point And somehow you get around those things or through them. You blaze a path. The path is not predetermined. The compass, the north, determines the path. Paul says in Hebrews 12... I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking, focused, compass to Jesus. The founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know how many times in Scripture it says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he intercedes for us? I mean, I read two already this morning. But in your mind, if you realize that, in your mind, if you think that, and if you focus on that, it will change how you navigate life. But what I'm saying is people... If Christ is our true north, he will guide our life. We'll stay on track every day, every situation. We have to understand we navigate. And if we fail to use our compass, if we fail to read the signs, and what you learn in in backpacking and all those kinds of things, they call it orienteering, that if you don't use a compass, you know what happens? You walk in circles. You literally, if you trust your instincts, if you don't read the moss and the trees and on the rocks and the stars and the sun and all those kinds of things, you will walk in circles. Look at the nation of Israel for 40 years and trace the path through the wilderness. You know what they did? They walked in circles. They walked in circles. If Christ is your true north, he will define your purpose, your values, your relationships, your discipline, your heart. So what I, want to th- what I want you to think about during this series is, have I and am I submitting myself to the authority of Jesus? Or if somehow have I 
become a mini Messiah? Have I become an authority unto myself? And have I set myself over people rather than bowing my knee to the author and finish of our faith? Here's how we're going to close. I want you to stand. And we're going to pray a prayer that when the disciples ask Jesus, hey, I notice you pray differently. Teach us to pray. And here's what he taught them. If we can have it on the screen. There it is. Let's pray this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Great prayer to wake up every day and pray. I mean, that'll mess with your head. That'll mess with your heart. That'll mess with your focus. Go in God's grace and be Christ in this great land we live. You're dismissed.